Good morning. Nice to be here. I, uh, I have to tell you the truth. I missed the red carpet. Um, is it rolled up and stored somewhere where I can maybe get a remnant, a faithful remnant of that carpet? Uh, <clears throat> I, I did, in fact, have a very adventurous drive this morning. I barely get to the freeway. It is raining cats and dogs and alligators and frogs. Uh, it looks like the scourges and the, and, and the plagues of Egypt in Duncanville this morning. <clears throat> I get to the freeway. I come over the little uh, overpass that's at I-20 and 67, and I see three vehicles doing this on the freeway, <clears throat> right in front of me, a uh, quarter mile in front of me. So I slow down, trying to uh, get people behind me to slow down. There's one lane that's open, uh, and, and I, I'm really in a quandary what to do. I, I'm not really physically much help and uh, it's raining and I don't want to get wet. And I, Honestly, I feel like one of the Levites or the priests in the story of the Good Samaritan earlier in Luke. And so I roll down my window a little bit and I, I reach out and say, I'd stop and help you, but i got to preach at Skillman this morning. <laughs> and so I, be warmed and filled, I'll call 911. But I've got to get to Skillman. I've got important religious obligations down the road, so... It was about 10 minutes later I figured out that I may have wanted to revisit that. Um, and it was, uh, and then I got a little farther down the road and I now understand why waterboarding is an international uh, uh, disgrace and torturing because I got waterboarded by an 18-wheeler for about 10 minutes uh, there on 67. And I get, to, uh, I, I get down to the Trinity River and yes, the animals are gathering two by two and I'm wondering if I should maybe try to get a spot on the boat, uh, but uh, I made it up here in good order, and I'm glad to be here. It's a treat. You know, um, churches of Christ, uh, ourselves included, have become fiercely independent. We probably have taken this whole autonomous thing too far, and we don't cooperate much with one another. And so it's very refreshing uh, to have a partner in the Skillman Avenue Church of Christ. We, as you know, have been... Uh, uh, now three or four year partners in the Grace Place, uh, something that I'm deeply engaged in, involved in, dear to my heart. Chuck and I, though we've known each other, I guess, for 25 or 30 years, have gotten closer um, in this ministry, working together. Uh, I see uh, a number of the participants out here this morning. Always good to see you. Uh, appreciate you so much uh, and, and appreciate this ministry and Skillman's um, support of it. So, uh, uh, apparently the Lord was willing and the creeks didn't rise, so we're here this morning to look at uh, Luke 19 and the story that's, I expect, uh, common to you. Today, if you haven't noted, is April 17th, and if you haven't noted, Friday was April 15th. Now, I'm not one of those people that wait till the last day to get my taxes in. Uh, uh, I had them done this year by 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon. I've been one of those people in line down at Sylvan at 11.59 before uh, because I owe money. And, and so I'm in no hurry to get it to them. Um, and it was, you know, it was, I, I, I like this country. I love this country. I like to pay taxes. Uh, but the other hand, it sure hurts uh, w- when that happens. And unfortunately, taxes in this country get a bad rap. Uh, and IRS people get a bad rap uh, as if it's their fault. Uh, but I guess if you've ever been involved with the IRS and you've had a cantankerous agent on the other end of the line, you've 
probably have some idea of what a tax collector is like. But a tax collector today in America is nothing like a tax collector uh, of the first century uh, Roman Jewish world. For you see, the, the tax collectors in Palestine or in Israel in the first century were notoriously uh, bad people because they had bought the position, they worked on commission, they made a lot of money, and they made it at the expense of their fellow countrymen. Because you see, here's how you became a Roman tax collector. You were well-connected. So you knew everybody in two or three miles. You knew their families. You knew who had money, who didn't. You know where the pot, pot uh, jars were buried in the backyard. You knew who dealt in cash, uh, who had proper social security numbers, who did what, where, when, and why. And so you, so you, the tax collector, made sure that the Romans squeezed every drop uh, of blood out of that turnip that they could. And because you paid a lot for the position, you wanted to make a lot, and working on commission, you were aggressive. And you traveled with a Roman cohort with you because your life was never safe. Nobody liked him. In fact, quite frankly, a Jewish tax collector were, was viewed by their peers as a scum of the earth. Scumbags. The lowest form of human life, if you will. Hard to find a real parallel in our culture today, and I've been thinking about one and trying to figure out one, and, and I think maybe I've come up with one. Um, his name is Joaquin Guzman. You know him as El Chapo, perhaps the most notorious drug dealer of the last 20 years. You know him because he was finally captured. Then he's escaped two maximum security prisons, and he's been caught again. And now, I don't know if you've been following his story, but he is begging now to be extradited to the United States because in the maximum security prison in which he is lodged now, they wake him up every hour just to make sure he's still there. And he's claiming sleep deprivation, and he's begged his attorneys to get him to the U.S. where he can get some sleep. He imported at one time a third of the drugs that came into America. Cocaine, heroin. He, in an interview that he gladly gave at his last capture, confessed to killing at least 3,000 people that he knows of. This guy's a scumbag. And it's interesting to me his nickname, El Chapo. The short one. I think he suffers certainly from short man's complex. And I don't know of all the fellow drug dealers that he slaughtered, but I expect they were taller than him. And this guy is an international hoodlum. He's a scumbag is what he is. We're going to bring him to America and we're going to try him and he's going to spend the rest of his life behind bars in a prison where he can't escape. And when I talk of him... It conjures up images, I think, of what a real scumbag is. Somebody who supplies the drugs, who sells them to junior high kids uh, when they leave the parking lot on their way home. There's no regard for any life but his own material profit. Heart so calloused with sin that uh, uh, no, no compassion left. A dried up heart. 
Well, that's what our friend Zacchaeus was. He was a scumbag, he was a traitor, and he was viewed as such. It might be worth noting that in the chapter before us, and this is the difficulty of parachuting in to an important story like we've done in chapter 19 without looking at the context, we have a number of stories in chapter 18 of Luke. One of them is the story of the publican, the tax collector, and the self-righteous Pharisee. Now, that tax collector is probably not Zacchaeus because he was a regular tax collector who probably paid a commission to Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus is described as an extremely wealthy chief, high-level tax collector who had all these people working under him and he took a cut of all their monies too. But in that dramatic story, we see that the tax collector is an unlikely hero. It's a self-righteous church guy the Pharisee, the teacher of the law, the preacher, the elder, who comes to pray and says, oh God, thank you for a lot of things, but thank you especially that I'm not like the scumbag over here next to me. For I do all these fine things that I know you're impressed with, and I know that you give me high marks for, and God, I know that you're just glad to have me on your team. And a worthless tax collector just dropped his head to and dropped to his knees and said, Oh God, oh God, God, have mercy upon me because I'm a sinner. And so scripture hints to us quickly that about the best thing we can do for ourselves, no matter what the degree of sin in which we dwell, is to recognize our true condition, and that is one who is alienated before God because of our sin in deep need of mercy and grace. That none of us stand meritoriously before God by our own accomplishments, our own trophies, our own marks. We all are in desperate need of grace. For all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. There's none righteous, no, not one. This is a hard lesson for people who grew up in fine Christian families who were born and raised in the church by by respectable, um, church-going, high-ethic parents and grandparents, functional people. Sometimes folks in Duncanville say, Ron, you just don't understand. You just don't get it, do you? And I say, no, I don't, because that's not how I was raised. I was raised by an alcoholic father, who on good days was mostly a jerk by a mom not much older than me in adject poverty in the mountains of northern Idaho. And I was a little hellion. And then I was a big hellion. And then grace chased me down at 30 years of age The hounds of heaven, Calvin called them, and overwhelmed me with love and somehow impressed upon my heart that no, I wasn't worthy of God's love and forgiveness, that that was the whole point. If I'd been worthy, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. 
And so I relate to the tax collector because we share a lot in common. Both a little vertical challenged, both of us greedy, ambitious, sneaky, clever. And so this story means a great deal to me personally. But I realized in my life, like the tax collector here, is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. 1910, one of the most familiar verses in all of Luke, if not all of in Scripture. It tells us why Jesus came from heaven to earth and his mission while he was here. He was after those who were lost, the lost sheep of Israel, and then the lost sheep of the Gentiles. Lost people, be they Jew or Gentile, it didn't make any difference, race, creed, color, language, education, economics. He was after people who were lost, and that turned out to be everybody. And that's why he came. But he has, by this time in the Gospel of Luke, in his travels, has developed a reputation. Zacchaeus has a reputation, but Jesus has one of his own. Jesus is known by the masses and, and decried and, and, and condemned by the Pharisees because he hangs out with all these scumbags and he eats with them. He goes to the homes of these low-life traders and he sits at a table and he breaks bread and he drinks wine and he's been even known to dance and party with them at weddings. He seems to embrace these people on the fringes and a particular, he has a particular fondness for the worst of the species by human standards. <laughs> but you know what's interesting to me is that those on the farthest of the fringes seem to be those who also possess the greatest potential to respond to the call for grace. Because we know we need it. We know that there's no other way to get to God. We have been failures and losers for so long that we know we can't do it on our own. This is a danger for church people. We church people now are, are constantly uh, tempted to think that we're good enough and our works are sound enough that God will receive us meritoriously, that, 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 that we're okay because of what we do. And that is a pathway to disaster. Because every day, like Zacchaeus, we need Jesus. We need grace. Well, Zacchaeus has heard the rumors. Maybe he's heard them from the underling of chapter 18. But he knows that Jesus is a giver of life. He's the great forgiver. Maybe even is considering the fact that he's the son of God. Maybe he is who he says he is. Maybe he has the power to forgive sins. Maybe he can give a new life. And Zacchaeus, though he's wealthy, I don't think he's all that happy. I don't think his quality of life is all that good. Because he understands that at any moment, a gorilla warrior, a zealot, might swing out of a sycamore tree and stick a dagger between ribs three and four cut off his head and send it to the Roman garrison 
as a reminder that they don't like traitors and they don't like Romans. He has to travel with, a, with, a, with bodyguards protecting him. These booths that they set up on the edge of the road like Matthew, those are armed booths with Roman soldiers surrounding them. Because for the Romans, might make right. And Zacchaeus, has, the little man, has found himself a big Roman army to protect him. But he, he wants to see Jesus, but he, he can't see, you know? He's on a pogo stick. But he's not getting a very good view of this itinerant rabbi who's rolled in from Galilee amidst all kinds of rumors of miraculous healings, life-changing powers. But he wants to see him, and he wants to know more, so he runs ahead and he finds a sycamore tree and he crawls up in it. And I'll, something you may not know about this setting or this story is that the sycamore in the summer is a very dense and thick tree, big leaves. And you can get inside of a sycamore tree and nobody's going to see you. You can hide in a sycamore tree. It's a great place for little four-year-old boys who don't want to eat their green beans and lima beans and mashed potatoes. Nobody can find you up there. Make great forts. So I think Zacchaeus went kind of as a voyeur to this tree. Wanting to see, but not wanting to be seen. So imagine his surprise when Jesus in this big entourage that he travels with, pass under the roadway and pass under the tree and all of a sudden, halt! Zacchaeus grows really quiet. Here's the thunder. I love it. It's Gilman. We don't get those sound effects in Duncanville. And he wonders what's going on. He's dead still. Doesn't want to be heard. And all of a sudden, the head of Jesus looks up, looks up, looks up, and there through the leaves makes eye contact with this notorious scumbag. He didn't take his armed guards up in the tree with him. He's really vulnerable. And Jesus sees him, and he thinks he's cooked. But instead... Jesus smiles at him, makes eye contact with him, and they both sense the twinkle. They lock on to one another. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, you're busted. (laughs) But that's a good thing. Come on down, because I must go to your house today so we can have some dinner. Everybody is startled. Everybody knows Zacchaeus. He, 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 he is you know, public enemy number one. And maybe they think Jesus misunderstands. But no, they don't. And then, of course, when they figure it out and the masses hear it, they are so delighted at the grace of God exhibited in Jesus. They, they're shouting, hallelujah, praise God, what a wonderful thing uh, that Jesus would invite this scumbag scumbag to have dinner and they're going to his house we just praise god hallelujah i just made that up to see if you're reading the text no they don't do that they do what they always do they mumble and they grumble and they gripe and they complain and they've always got a better idea than god (laughs) 
Now, let me ask you something. Has it ever irritated you when God misbehaves and he chases down the vilest person that you know of? I mean the ugliest, nastiest person that you can think of. I'm conjuring up all kinds of them. And then reaches out and saves them. And maybe brings them into your body. Years ago in Celebrate Recovery in Duncanville, we converted a woman. I was very active in that conversion. And she had a notorious past. And, but she came to fire for the Lord. And she told me, she said, I've got a husband when I ask her, but you don't want to meet him because he's the most obnoxious man in the world. Oh, I laughed. No, he's not. I know all kinds of obnoxious people. In fact, I just came from the gym. And the most obnoxious man in the world works out at the same time I do uh, up at the Duncanville uh, gym. And so, believe me, I can put up with him. Now, barely. He makes me sick. Well, I said, actually, he's the vilest creature I've ever seen, and I detest him. So don't worry about it. I want to meet your husband. Bring him sometime. And, and, and everything will be good, because God loves everybody. I love everybody. Everybody's welcome here. Bring him on. So it's New Year's Day, Sunday New Year's Day, about, I don't know, almost 15 years ago now. And so I see Kim um, in, 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 in the foyer. And I mean, she sees me, and she comes at a dead run right to me. And she is dancing and clicking her heels. She looks like Dorothy in her red boots. And she said, Ron, Ron, he's here, he's here, he's here, he's here. He came today. I said, who's here, who's here, who's here? She said, my husband, Brooke. I said, really? I can, I want to meet him. And she said, come on, and I will. And so she drug me through the busy foyer, and we, and we got up there, and and all of a sudden, the seas parted, and I looked, and there was her husband, Brooke, the most obnoxious man in the world from the gym. <laughs> this is a true story. And seldom am I at a loss for words. I can count them on one hand, but this was it. And he's, he's a big guy. I mean, he's muscled up. He's a big guy. And he talks like this. He's he's normal talk. He talks really fast, really loud all the time. And he likes to squeeze you. And I had to go over and sit down. And I was praying, dear Lord, let not this be so. (laughs) Dear Lord, both you and I know that this guy can't come here. He's not good enough for this church. Oh, God, may this be a mistake. Send him away, I pray. God, listen to me. This is a big mistake you're making here. You know God. God decided to save Brooke. Baptized him a month or two later. Seen him a week. uh, Once a day for the last two weeks, he's roofed. A building down at Ministerial for me. We've been friends for all these years. Uh, he's, he, he's now the most obnoxious Christian I've ever met. But 
but washed in the blood, a, a steady recipient of grace. And, and But boy, did it take me a while to get over that. And I know God did it for Brooke, but he did it for me. Because I was still stuck in my self-righteousness. I still had an idea of who was fit and who wasn't. Because here's the problem each of us have. We struggle to see people as Jesus sees people. You don't get anything out of this today but this. Look at people through the lenses of grace like Jesus sees them. People in need of salvation. People in need of love and forgiveness. People are obnoxious jerks for a reason. And the only cure is grace. Unmitigated grace. You have to love the undeserving. Hey, it's really easy, isn't it? To reciprocate in love for those who love you. I mean, I got five grandkids that I just cherish. They see me coming. They run up, say, gaga, 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 let's go. And they just love me unconditionally, and I love them unconditionally. It's a piece of cake. But can I, can you love the person that doesn't deserve the love, hasn't earned it, and isn't going to do a blinking thing for you in return? Now, that's agape love. That's Jesus' love. That's the love that the church must display toward all people. You know, I get so irritated at the internet stuff and the hateful things that are on it. The accusations and the character assassinations of people. We, don't, don't get engaged in that stuff. Who knows but God who's next to come into salvation? How do you know what God's doing in their life? How do you know if they're not close to coming to him? Because if we're not careful, we'll be like these grumblers of Luke 19, who are irritated at Jesus for saving this scumbag. Folks, the Bible is real clear. We're all scumbags without the blood of Jesus. Every one of us. The only difference between us and them is that we're washed in the blood, we're forgiven. We've been dipped in grace. Immersed in grace. <clears throat> and it now identifies us. Well, I want to finish up here this morning by reminding us that if grace isn't for everybody, then it isn't for anybody. If grace isn't for everybody, it's not for anybody. Everybody is saved the same way. We're saved by grace through faith, and guess what? It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that no person can boast about it. Every person is saved by grace through faith. And, and the longer you've been a Christian, and the cleaner the people are that you hang with, and the more careful you are with who you rub shoulders with, and the more irritated you get at the bile depravity that constitutes contemporary culture, the more vulnerable you become in regard to self-righteousness and missing out on the real true meaning of grace. So here's what you do practically. You've got to get out and you've got to go where the real sinners are. You've got to get out and be a purveyor of grace. You can't keep it to yourself. 
Two years ago now, <clears throat> I think I lost my mind. I've done that numbers of times over the years. Uh, and sometimes it returns faster than others. But with the grace of God and with a, a generous and wealthy patron, I started a new ministry, uh, 501c3, not unlike Grace Place Properties, called Ministerio Next Generation. And we bought St. George's Episcopal Church building on Beckley Avenue in Oak Cliff between Clarendon and Illinois in what has notoriously been for the last 30 years some of the poorest and worst and most dangerous turf in all of Dallas-Fort Worth. My wife says it still is and I ought not to be there on a regular basis, on a daily basis. But I feel compelled to be there. Now, You've got people who live down there very close to it. Lauren's grinning at me like a Cheshire cat uh, out here. And on Beckley Avenue there, there's a steady stream of drug dealers and prostitutes that walk that street. There's a shady hotel that rents by the hour just up the street. And there's no mistaking why it exists. And the women who walk that street are a constant daily challenge to my faith. Because you know what I want to do? I want to judge them. Do you know that perhaps the most satisfying emotion that a human being can experience is to position oneself in a place where you can justifiably look down your nose at somebody else. And then if you can find a couple other people to join you, and together you can look down collectively at another subspecies, it is so incredibly gratifying to think that you're better than somebody else. That is so contrary to the nature of grace that we need to constantly challenge ourselves and look inside of us. So, one day I'm down there not too long ago and uh, saw a young woman walking, but it's such a commonplace deal I didn't pay much attention. And she was just walking, and so I, I pulled into the parking lot at Ministerio Turned my truck around, and I had a, a bunch of texts that I needed to answer. So I'm sitting there with my truck off, and the windows up. It's kind of a, windows are, are up, and it's kind, it's kind of a cool day. And I'm not paying any attention, and I'm texting on my phone and, and, and looking down. All of a sudden, have you ever felt an omnipresence, like there's somebody looking over your shoulder? And so I felt that. And so I look up, and I turn, and about six inches from my face is that prostitute looking in my window, almost with her nose pressed up against the glass. She thinks that I'm a trick. And as, as, as much as I've been around, and as many places I've been, you would think that I wouldn't panic under those conditions. But she caught me so bad off guard, I didn't know what to do. I, I, I just, in, in fear, 
just fear. I just started the engine, put it in park, and peeled out. Nearly ran over her feet. Because what would happen if I was caught consorting with people like this? What if this got back to the church in Duncanville? Well, it might make it up to it might make it up to Skillman. I, I might not be asked to come preach. Yeah, somebody would call in and say, Chuck, you know that Ron, he's been known to consort with prostitutes down on Beckley. You really think we ought to have him here? I wasn't thinking like Jesus was thinking. And that's not uncommon for me. It's not uncommon for you. I should have taken three deep breaths, rolled down my window, and said, how can I help you? What can I do for you? I know who you are, and I'm one of you. And I want to tell you that today, the only love that you need comes from Jesus. And I will help you come in contact with that great love and forgiveness. And he will bring you life, an abundant life. And instead, I sped off and nearly run her over, rejected her, and confirmed what she's been told over and over again. Pretty girl, you're a scumbag. And so, with God's grace, we're rebuilding that building down at Ministerial. You may want to help us. And we're going to turn it into a place where prostitutes and drug dealers, and sinners of the sort that consorted with Jesus can come and find a place to be loved, a place to be nurtured, a place of hope, a place of grace. Because not only do they need it, I need it. And guess what? So do you. If Jesus were alive today, where would he live? In a fenced, uh, high-scale housing development? A place designed to keep out the riffraff? No, I don't think so. I don't even think he'd visit there. But I think he might come down to Beckley, eat a burger, all beef burger, on the, on the grill, hang out with the sinners, love on the sinners. Because grace is for everybody. And as people who have received grace, we have to dispense grace. And what a beautiful opportunity that is. You know, back in 18, we had two characters. The second one was the rich young ruler who was given an opportunity for salvation. He turned and he walked away because he said, I, I got too much to lose. I got it too good in this world. 
I can't, I can't, I can't follow those rigid commands of yours. Because Jesus said it's difficult for people comfortable in this world to really experience his grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke doesn't even have the spirit part. He says blessed are the poor. And that poor not, means not only economically, but every way you can imagine. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Do you, you see how upside down counterculture grace is? Grace is looking for the poor and the beat up and the riffraff and the scumbags. That's who God is looking for. And as God's people, that's who we need to be looking for. It's a wonderful opportunity God's given us. What a chance to demonstrate and show our love. What a wonderful way to be like Jesus. Father, we pray that we can be like Jesus. I pray that you will forgive me of this self-righteous junk, trash that constantly creeps into my heart and into my head. What am I thinking, O Lord? Forgive me of that. Help me, O Lord, to be a dispenser of grace. Help these good people who have come here today understand what it means to be to, to be, to be a, a, a purveyor and a dispenser of, of, of this incredible love and forgiveness. May we, Father, recalculate our hearts and minds. May we reconfigure ourselves and understand who we really are and what desperate need we have for grace and how that we only stay in grace when we, when we give it away and when we dispense it. We've got to give it away to experience it, Lord, and that's my prayer today. That just as Zacchaeus said, oh Lord, what can I do? I'll pay him back four times. I'll make everything right. I want to, I want, I want to get involved. I want to, I want to stop. I want to stop exploiting and, 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 and cheating and doing all this evil stuff. And I want to be right with, 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 with you, oh Lord. And I want to be right with people. That's our prayer today. That like Zacchaeus, our hearts will be moved in such a way that we'll be right with you and right with others by the power of the one who saved Zacchaeus and who saved me and saved us all. Our Lord Jesus, we love you and amen.